You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know? Up until about halfway in development, Majora's Mask was planned to have an adult mask. The Hyrule Historia shows some concept art of Adult Link, with a note saying, Only Child Link appears in Majora's Mask, but for some reason, there are illustrations for Adult Link. The folks who wrote the Hyrule Historia didn't know why that art was in there, but we managed to figure it out by translating some old Japanese magazines ourselves. According to co-director Yoshiaki Koizumi, an adult mask was originally planned as a bonus feature. He said, until halfway into development, there was a mask that let you turn into Adult Link. In this game, Link can transform into different races, so Adult Link would have just been a bonus feature. But art director Imamura pointed out that just turning into an adult wasn't very interesting, and it didn't make Link stronger or anything. So we decided not to include Adult Link this time. The Hyrule Historia theorized that maybe these sketches were prototypes for Fierce Deity Link, but in that same magazine, the developers say no, the adult mask was completely separate. The actual origins of the Fierce Deity Mask was that at one point they made a mask that turned Link into a gigantic Fierce Deity, but it was so overpowered it totally broke the game, so they split its abilities in half and made two masks out of it, the Giant's Mask and the Fierce Deity Mask. In the final game, you can only use the Fierce Deity against bosses, and the Giant's Mask is only usable in one room, Twin Mold's Boss Chamber. They're two of the coolest masks in the game, but these restrictions mean you only get to wear them a few minutes during an entire playthrough. But it wasn't always supposed to be that way. During development, the other co-director, Eiji Aonuma, said it was only proper that they can be worn anywhere, just like all the other masks, but that was going to take some time. Time they unfortunately didn't have. There were some complications, like that the doors in Clocktown are big enough for Adult Link to pass through, but the Fierce Deity's too tall, so they would have had to make special animations to make him duck down. Shigeru Miyamoto only gave them one year to make the game, and the release date was coming up soon, so they just didn't have the time to make it happen. You can still screw around with both masks in Clocktown using cheats, but it's super glitchy because, you know, they didn't have the time to make it work right. These developer stories were printed in the Japanese magazine Nintendo Dream, 
More specifically, the extra mini-magazines included with the July, August, and September 2000 issues. There's about a dozen pages of developer secrets, behind-the-scenes stories, and answers to fan theories inside. Insider details that the writers of the Hyrule Historia didn't even know. So we had them all translated, and that's where most of the information in today's video is going to come from. In one issue, programmer Kenzo Hayakawa says, Actually, the position of most of the stars is determined by the player's name. When night falls, look for your own unique constellation. I guess you could say every playthrough of Majora's Mask is personalized, depending on what name you choose when the game begins. To test it out, we made two save files, one where we named ourselves Link, and another named Zelda. Then, in each one, we stood in the same spot and stared at the same patch of sky. As you can see, Link's sky has about twice as many stars as Zelda's. Nintendo Dream's readers knew this little secret since the game came out, but it wasn't known in the West until 2021, when a modder named Zell discovered it in the game's code. Something else most Westerners don't know is that the Great Bay's giant turtle is based on Kinsan Ginsan, a pair of Japanese twins famous for living well past 100, making them the oldest twins in the world. Kinsan died while Majora's Mask was in development, so the designer used her face as inspiration for the ancient turtle. We think that might be why Link gives a long wave goodbye to the turtle at the temple. The designer didn't say that, but it's what it looks like to us. Saying goodbye to the famous Kinsan who lived to 107. Her sister Ginsan died a few months after Majora's Mask released. May they rest in peace. In another issue, Miyamoto says he wanted to add a fishing minigame, but not just improving on the fishing in Ocarina of Time, because that might end up too similar to mother creator Shigesato Itoi's bass fishing game. He said, Rather than improving on the fishing from the last game, I want to do something new, like jabu-jabu fishing or something. Maybe the moon won't fall if you catch jabu-jabu or something, but the reward will probably just end up being rupees. Like, time is money, so you can use rupees to buy time from a time merchant. It sounds good, right? We're still thinking about it. None of those ideas made it into the final game, although the time merchant might have ultimately become the banker who breaks the laws of time. The guy who would have made the fishing minigame was Kazuaki Morita, a real-life fishing aficionado. He made the series' first fishing game in Link's Awakening, and secretly created the fishing hole in his off hours for Ocarina. But he said if players lost track of time at Terminus Fishing Hole, the world would get destroyed, so he didn't make one. Apparently they had a change of heart though, because fishing holes were eventually added in Majora's 3DS remake, and you can even catch Lord Chapu Chapu, who's basically a tiny version of Jabu Jabu. Catching him doesn't stop time, or really give you anything at all though, just bragging rights. According to series composer Koji Kondo, each Zelda game's music has a specific theme. Wind Waker has an Irish influence, Twilight Princess is more reminiscent of Eastern Europe, and Majora's Mask is more like Chinese opera, which sounds like this. There's more than just these two, but Majora's theme and the Happy Mask Salesman's theme are a couple good examples. In another issue, the cinema scene director says only half the cutscenes made it into the final game. One he specifically mentions getting cut was a great fairy teaching Link how to do a spin attack. That scene's still on the cartridge though, and was discovered years later, along with cutscenes for the other four fairies in Termina, although they're clearly unfinished. One that's almost finished shows Link having to do sit-ups and push-ups to earn his double defense upgrade. So instead of the fairies just giving Link his rewards, it seems they were originally going to make him work for it. Unfortunately, it appears most 
most of the other scrapped cutscenes got erased to free up cartridge space. A lot of ideas had to get scrapped because of the one-year deadline. In one of these magazines, Miyamoto says, A lot of people ended up working overtime due to the sheer volume of work that had to be done. Suffice it to say, this was one tough year, I assure you. As long as it was finished, anything was acceptable. I made it clear that that's what was most important. At the start, the staff seemed pretty stressed out. They were like, there's no way we can make it in a year. Towards the end of development, Miyamoto tried to ease the tension with some small talk and what he calls naughty stories, but the Zelda team found him unbearable and said they just didn't have time for his rambling. Aonuma says he had to pull at least one all-nighter and didn't even have time to play the game start to finish before it released. Majora's writers revealed that some of the NPCs are actually speaking for the developers. Scriptwriter Mitsuhiro Takano said, we put our feelings into the mouths of Termina's residents. Like when work was getting backed up, we wrote one carpenter to say, Damn, I'll have to stay up again. I wonder if I'll finish this. And damn, guess I'm staying up again tonight. I wonder if it'll be ready in time. Another example I wrote when our work was interfering with home life was the mayor saying, Don't tell my wife. And after we completed development, I wrote the mask salesman to say, You've met with a terrible fate. In other words, the guys who worked on Majora's Mask felt they'd met with a terrible fate to have to make a Zelda game with such a tight deadline. At one point, they went to a co-worker's wedding and still weren't off the clock. Takano remembers, the groom had his hairstyle done like Kafe's. When we saw that, we thought, we can use this. We were hardly paying attention to the wedding ceremony, just saying, this could all be game content. Koizumi chimes in, it was right around that time there was an uproar over North Korea's Taepodong missile, and so we were joking around like, is it really a good idea to have a wedding when we're on the brink of destruction? And Takano, Aonuma, and I were all excited at what good material this could make. The thought, is it really okay to put on a happy face and have a wedding, isn't a missile about to fall on us? That was a perfect allegory for the moon falling. Then they skipped the wedding reception because they were scared of getting vaporized. But they weren't only short on time. Cartridge space was a concern as well. The devs say they were constantly having to shave things down and search for content they were willing to cut so it'd all fit. All the boss animations took up an especially big chunk, like the first boss Odal was dancing. Speaking of which, Odalwa's name is a pun on the Japanese word Odarua, which means dance. In development, the bull boss was originally named Hashilwa, a pun on the word run, and the fish boss was Oyorg, a pun on the word swim. Every boss was named after the verb they represented, but all their names ended up getting changed, except Odalwa, who's the only boss in the final game still named after his verb to dance. Majora's Mask is sort of the black sheep of the series, with a story, setting, and tone very different to what came before. But there was one earlier Zelda game that was also pretty unique, Link's Awakening, which took place entirely in a dream. That game's weirdness was mostly thanks to one man, Yoshiaki Koizumi. He's long had sort of an adversarial relationship with Miyamoto when it comes to storytelling, like when he snuck Rosalina's storybook into Mario Galaxy without the big guy's permission. In one of these magazines, he says, I worked on the plot of Link's Awakening. I did the main story, and Kensuke Tanabe wrote the side plots. I made quite a strange story, and afterwards Miyamoto told me he'd never let me do it again. But I consider that a compliment. I had wanted to do something that wasn't at all Miyamoto-esque. He goes on to say that for the next game, Ocarina of Time, Miyamoto only let him work on a few side quests, like the ones focused on Skull Kid and the Mask Shop. 
After Ocarina, Koizumi started working on a non-Zelda game that he described as using certain systems to replay something over and over. He said, The plan I had was a game that had a fixed time period of three days or a week or so, and the townspeople having fixed schedules they followed. It was while doing that that I went together with Miyamoto to America. The whole time he was complaining about how things weren't going well with Majora's development. And I was just like, oh yeah, that's too bad. I was busy planning that other game, and I was incredibly motivated. But then Miyamoto, his little whispers started calling to me. Zelda. 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 And before I knew it, my game was cancelled. I was shocked. Once we got back to Japan, I had my entire situation explained to me. And I said I would join the Majora team, but only if I was allowed to do things my way. After that, Koizumi inserted a lot of the concepts from his cancelled game into Majora's Mask. Three days played over and over, townspeople moving around on fixed schedules, and so on. Koizumi was responsible for everything that happened inside Clockdown, and Aonuma was in charge of everything outside. Although Koizumi eventually invaded his territory and took control of Romani Ranch, arguing that it was really an extension of the town. And that's how Koizumi became Majora's co-director, and the game turned out as weird as it did. Despite Miyamoto saying he'd never let him do it again. Speaking of weirdness in Romani Ranch, there's a cutscene most Zelda fans will never see even if they get 100% completion. If you do the milk delivery side quest more than once, sometimes you're only rewarded with a gold rupee, but there's also a chance of getting a more adult reward. A special cutscene where Kremia thanks Link with a big hug, and his face is squeezed between her, uh, moo-moos. The game says, you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. <sighs> you could get used to this. In one of these Japanese magazines, Koizumi says, That was born out of a mistake. When we were setting up Link's position, we accidentally put him too close, and his face got lodged inside Kremia's model. When we saw that, we immediately wrote up a way to include it in the game. The script director and I thought that would be any boy's dream. And the interviewer says, Yeah, I know. I was pretty happy about that. The whole development team actually had sort of a rivalry, dividing themselves up into two teams, Kremia fans and Anju fans. The two girls are friends, but the game hints at sort of a love triangle, with Kremia having a secret crush on Anju's fiancé. When the interviewer asked Aonuma which team he was on, he said neither girl was really to his liking. Others, like cutscene programmer Naoki Mori, had stronger feelings. He said, Personally, I think Kremia, who hides her loneliness by smiling, is a better woman than Anju, who lets her unhappiness bubble up to the surface. Then he asks the magazine's readers, but what do you think? I don't know, I guess let us know in the comments under this video if you're Team Anju or Team Kremia. Besides Koizumi, another guy who had a huge influence on how Majora turned out was Takuya Imamura, who's probably best known as the creator of characters like Star Fox, Captain Falcon, and Tingle. Majora's Mask is actually kind of named after him. According to these magazines, the Japanese title Mojura is a mix between Imamura and Jumanji. Yeah, the Robin Williams movie. Jumanji was kind of a big deal back then. Just like Koizumi, Imamura was brought onto the team mid-development when they were really struggling. Interestingly though, neither of them even wanted to work on Zelda. Throughout these magazine interviews, Koizumi and Imamura made it clear they were pretty much forced to work on Zelda. Imamura was offered the job of Majora's art director, he tried to refuse, but didn't have a choice, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise because the game wouldn't have been the same without him. If you'd gone to the 1999 Space World trade show, you'd see the moon didn't have a face, not in the playable demo, and not even in the promotional art. That's because Imamura added the moon's face about two months before the game was finished, and the moon's tier and most of the other moon-related content was created soon after. He told Nintendo Dream, It really tied the whole game together. The moon's face was originally something I drew as a concept art sketch, and it just so happened that I drew a face on the moon, and Koizumi really liked it. 
Koizumi told me to give the moon a face that looked like Majora's mask, but I ignored him and went with this face. I figured I'll use my own judgment and go with a face I like. No one's going to complain, it's fine. And besides, I've got seniority. Imamura says he originally drew the face of one of their superiors, but later changed it to the moon we know today. The inside of the moon was different as well. Originally, it was more like a graveyard, but later on, they changed it to a grassy hill. An idea they got from space battleship Yamato. The 1970s anime generally considered the granddaddy of Gundam and the entire space opera genre. Yamato's plot is actually pretty similar to Majora's Mask. In the game, Earth's threatened by an evil force that's making the moon fall, and Link's gotta go to the moon to save the world at the last minute. In the anime, Earth's threatened by an evil force making meteors fall, and the heroes have to go to the planet Iskandar to save the world at the last minute. And according to Koizumi, Iskandar was the direct inspiration for the inside of Majora's Moon, which is pretty clear when you see them side by side. Explaining why, he said, With the world of Majora being so strange, the inside of the moon being like the planet Iskandar provides contrast by being ordinary. In a fairy tale world, it's a realistic world. Or maybe I should say a picturesque world that makes you feel the greatest sense of unease. Clockdown changed too. Originally, it was a medieval European-style town, but the devs felt like it was too similar to Ocarina of Time. Koizumi said, We also weren't happy with how the towns were at that point. Overall, it was pretty weak. So I asked our artist Yusuke Nakano to draw some quick concept art with a pencil. I was surprised to see that he made it all in full color, but those pictures got us the full go-ahead to go in that direction. He suggested we set it during a carnival, and we immediately decided to go with that. One of the guys who had to do the grunt work of actually rebuilding Clocktown started crying, but they say the tears ultimately paid off because what he ended up making was a lot better than the medieval Clocktown they started off with. When Majora's Mask was remade for the 3DS, Aonuma was asked about a few fan theories that cropped up over the past 15 years, like that Link's adventures in Termina are all a dream. He gets knocked unconscious in the opening cutscene. A lot of the characters are sort of dreamlike reimaginings of people in Hyrule, and one big hint is the inclusion of the Ballad of the Windfish. In Link's Awakening, Link plays the same tune to end the Windfish's dream, which erases the island where the game takes place. So is Termina a dream as well? Aonuma said no. The reason that this song from Link's Awakening was used in this game really came down to a decision by the sound team. They were looking for inspiration, something that would fit the theme, and since the previous game was about collecting instruments, it made sense that you would want to use that for a band in this case. For us, really, it was just a playful choice that referenced a previous game and nothing more than that. However, I love that people think about stuff like this, and I think it shows how they feel about the franchise as a whole that they're interested in these possibilities. Another theory is that Termina is a metaphor for the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The townsfolk are in denial that the moon is going to destroy everything they hold dear. The Deku King is punishing the monkey out of anger. Darmani's ghost is bargaining for a return to the world of the living. Lulu's fallen into depression after the loss of her eggs, and Ikana is the land of death representing the final stage of grief, acceptance. Was all this done intentionally by the developers, or was it just the fans' interpretation? Again, Aonuma basically said no, the concept was invented by the fans, not the writers. Quote, It's certainly true that each one of these different episodes you talked about has a slightly different emotional cast to it. One feels like it's tinged with sadness, and another with anger. That certainly was intentional. But I also want to point out that it's not that each of these episodes has only one emotion that they're conveying. There are certainly other notes that we're trying to hit as well. And the reason we did this is to allow the player to experience that emotion, to give them a chance to hook into the emotional tone of the scene and react to it and feel like they want to accomplish something in the game as a result of it. Another curiosity was brought up to Aonuma. The other three transformation masks are the spirits of an individual Deku, Goron, and Zora. So whose soul is in the fierce deity mask? His answer? 
the best I can give you is just a suggestion. The best way to think of it is that the memories of all the people of Termina are inside the Fierce Deity Mask. As for why it's so painful when Link puts on the Transformation Mask, he said it's because the spirits of the dead have unfinished business. However, some mysteries were left intentionally vague. Are the mask collectors on the moon the mask salesman's kids? Did Kafe turn back into an adult at the end, or was he stuck as a child forever? In these Japanese magazines, Koizumi says those questions were left unknowable on purpose. There are no answers, but he enjoys seeing fans cook up theories to answer them anyway. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We have some new and exclusive information in this video, so stick around till the end for some fresh facts about some of Nintendo's own N64 titles. Now, let's just jump right in. We love us some Diddy Kong Racing. It's a game with a lot of interesting secrets, like the hidden language option that can be found in the US version of the title. By modifying a small piece of the game's code, a normally inaccessible Japanese language option can be activated, but it isn't exactly a decent option for Japanese players. Rather than actually translating the game's text, all it does is replace the game's text with the word Japanese written in English. Amazing, you can tell they spent an entire five minutes on that one. The game also has another undisclosed feature that was implemented to dissuade piracy, which has been discovered since our last video covering anti-piracy measures in N64 games. When activated, the anti-piracy measure will reduce the traction on some of the surfaces of tracks, which makes them almost completely undrivable. This was only discovered after fans began attempting to decompile the game's code, known as the DKR Decompilation Project, which so far has unearthed some neat little secrets just like this one. While the Nintendo 64 was stuck being seen as a console for kids, thanks to people judging games like Diddy Kong Racing just from the way they look, this did not necessarily mean that every game released for the system was targeting this demographic. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, for example, was generally aimed at young adults and teens, meaning that most versions of the title contain some less than family-friendly content. This content that, at the time, would have turned some heads if parents saw their kids playing it. And when the game was brought to the N64 from the PlayStation, many of these more mature elements had to be toned down either at the order of Nintendo or someone else. These cuts removed things that you wouldn't even bat an eye at in modern games, such as the removal of blood being sprayed from the player whenever they fail a trick. Developers of the N64 version, Edge of Reality, also altered some of the language and suggested names of the various gaps found across the title stages, which appear when performing a trick between two set pieces. This includes the Handy Gap, a play on the term handicap, becoming the Spanky Gap. The Long Ass Rail became Big Daddy Rail, and the Holy Shit became Holy Cow. Alterations were even made to Private Carrera's age, in which her profile previously referred to her as Barely Legal, where now she's said to be 41, which isn't even close to an age that you would refer to as being Barely Legal. Several boards even had their name changed as well, such as the Erector Set becoming Yes Mom, Viagra Falls being Thanks Bob, a bit of an odd trade-off there, Manhandler becoming Hot Stuff, Feelin' Blue being changed to Miss Devastation, New Member becoming Crazy Stats, Solid Wood changing to Foxy Lady, and lastly, Skate Hard being changed to Skate Mean. 
Game developers are an interesting lot, often dedicated to the job and tiring over a computer on their own, but some have other loves that they hold dear. For the team behind NHL Breakaway 98, it seemed that the developers wanted to express their love as best they knew how. During the game's creation, a decent chunk of empty space was left over for the team to play around with. So, to show some love to their families, a secret slideshow was included in the game's code. In order to view this slideshow, the player would have to insert a specific combination of buttons. The only problem, however, is that the devs actually forgot the code that they'd programmed into the game for this to work. So, as a result, the only means of actually seeing this small dedication is through the use of a game shark. Another interesting 64 tidbit again comes from the Donkey Kong franchise. During a 2013 developer commentary Let's Play of Conker's Bad Fur Day, longtime Rare programmer Chris Marlowe shared an interesting anecdote of another Rare N64 classic, Donkey Kong 64. Marlowe told viewers that while working on DK64, developers at Rare discovered a memory leak issue that would occur almost immediately when playing the game, which would lead to the game crashing. Unfortunately, they were unable to root out the reason for this happening before the game's final release, so instead, they were forced to include the game in a bundle with the N64 expansion pack, which inexplicably fixes the issue. There was there was a there was a bug that caused the game to randomly crash that only occurred in the four meg only version. They physically the game just kept randomly crashing and they couldn't find out what it was, so they had to ship with the memory card in it. For free. This story, however, is disputed by another Donkey Kong 64 dev, Mark Stevenson. In an interview in November of 2019, Stevenson claimed that Rare's management had planned to have the game support the expansion pack from very early on, instructing the devs to create the game as such, including quite advanced graphics for the time like dynamic lighting. He went on to say that DK64 did indeed feature a game-breaking bug during development, but it was only an issue on particular N64 hardware and was eventually Fixed. He also speculates that the memory leak rumours were born of the two different stories merging over the years. Expansion ports can open up a whole world of discovery with consoles. They add extra functionality, but with that, the potential for abuse. With Morita Shogi 64, a Japan-exclusive virtual shogi game, the developers included an additional port in the game's cartridge, which added a function otherwise entirely missing from the N64 console, an RJ11 modem connection port. This port would allow players to connect to a surprisingly now defunct online server, allowing them to play the game against others across Japan. However, this opened up an exploit for the system, allowing a user to use an arbitrary code execution exploit so that they can actually run their own homebrew software. It's worth noting that Morita Shogi 64's cartridge isn't the only modem for an N64. There was also a modem built into a cartridge that worked with the 64DD, giving players access to things like RANnet. However, since the 64DD was produced in limited supply and was never sold outside of Japan, Morita Shogi 64 is by far the cheaper option for the N64 homebrew. Toy Story 2 Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue is fondly remembered as being a pretty decent 3D platformer that wasn't developed by either of the kings of platforming, Nintendo or Sony. The game is remembered by some for another reason, however, as the title found itself in a bit of trouble post-launch, which led to some revisions. Not exactly a massive change, though a noticeable one, is that one of the game's generic enemies was altered for the European release of the game on N64, and all versions on the Dreamcast. The reason for this change is that the enemy's appearance was originally that of a stereotypical Mexican bandito. The character was altered by changing their hair colour to blonde, 
giving them a white hat and changing their clothing, essentially changing them from a Mexican stereotype to an American cowboy stereotype. While not changed in the game's original US release, a second version of the game was published in North America which used this model instead. This isn't the only game with a small-scale toy box aesthetic for the Nintendo 64. The other title is, of course, Paper Mario. During Chapter 3 of Paper Mario, there's a segment where the player must evade the area's boss, Tubba Blubber. If Mario is caught, a battle will be triggered and the player is expected to simply flee. However, there are some little-known and inventive ways of ending the fight. If the player uses Lady Bo's out-of-sight move, Tubba Blubber will be confused that he can no longer see Mario, and he will leave the fight. But if Lady Bo is out of commission, there's another way that players can trick Tubba Blubber into leaving Mario alone. The Repel Gel item will also make Mario turn transparent and have the same effect as using Out of Sight. But the game has other secrets that are even more obscure. In the game's fifth chapter, players will come across a village of Yoshis. One of them will randomly say, the village leader is my friend, but this line is linked to a secret that can only be seen by extracting unused graphics from the game. In-game, this Yoshi always hides their hands. However, there are unused sprites of the NPC showing that he and the village leader wear matching friendship bracelets. None of the other Yoshis in the village have these bracelets. We're not entirely sure why Yoshi hides the fact in the final game, but the two Yoshis wearing the friendship bracelets may have been a minor plot point during development. Now, we've probably all wanted to be involved with game development at some point in our lives. And for one young Nintendo Power Reader, that wish became a reality. For the release of Turok 2 Seeds of Evil, Nintendo Power Magazine held a Turok contest in which the grand prize winner would have their likeness put into the then upcoming Turok sequel. Juan Gaspar won this contest and was awarded a trip to the offices of Iguana Entertainment where he had his image digitized along with his voice recorded so that he could be injected into the game. However, seeing his face involves some effort with the player having to enter a cheat code, here's Juan in the N64 port or Yo Quiero Juan in the PC release. By doing so, Juan's face can appear on the game's life force tokens. Imagine going over to a friend's house in the 90s and putting a cheat code in a game and suddenly your face is everywhere throughout. It would have blown their tiny little minds. There are more password-based secrets in the Turok franchise, including its progenitor, Turok Dinosaur Hunter. The game features numerous cheat codes with a variety of functions, including your usual extra lives and invincibility, etc. That said, there are a few in the game that are less cheat codes and more of fun hidden Easter eggs. If the player enters the password SNFFRR, it will activate Disco Mode. The environmental textures of the stage will begin to cycle through a variety of colors. Enemies will no longer attack the player because they'll be too busy enjoying the show and having a little dance. The password LLTHCLRSFTHRNB will turn on Purdy Colors. This will also alter the colors of the textures, though this time it's a static multicolored effect. The code DLKTDR will put the game in pen and ink mode. This will render the game in what is essentially wireframe mode. All of the models, including the enemies, will be displayed as wireframes. Lastly, entering the code CLLTHTNMTN engages Quack mode, a poke at the popular first-person shooter Quake. 
This mode disables all of the game's animation interpolation, significantly reducing the game's perceivable frame rate. It also disables all of the texture filtering and particle rendering, features which were important selling points of Turok and a lot of what set it apart from the id software PC powerhouse. There are more secrets in the world of Turok, but some aren't even found in a Turok game itself. The lead character of the games, the dinosaur hunter Turok, has a fully playable character model in the code of the wrestling game WWF Warzone. Found in both the PS1 and N64 versions of the game, the character is completely inaccessible without the use of a cheat device. While playable, he isn't exactly an original fighter, with Turok making use of The Rock's moveset and entering the fight to one of the CAW entrance themes. Another unplayable character can be found in another title under the WWF banner, WWF No Mercy. While not a full character model, it's possible to use a Game Shark device to unlock an additional face texture for the wrestler edit mode. The face of The Big Show, a famous wrestler who was originally intended to make an appearance in the game, though was removed during development as a result of his contract at the WWF expiring. The name of the texture is RROR, likely meaning error. Another hidden feature in the game was a piece of functionality that was removed during the late stages of development, which would have allowed the player to create their wrestler in the N64 game and transfer them over to a Game Boy Color version of the title through the use of the N64 transfer pack. However, as a result of the Game Boy Color version of No Mercy being cancelled, this was of course removed, though the menu can still be accessed by using GameShark codes. From cut characters to an entirely cut game. Toon Panic is a 3D arena fighter that never received a release. The title was cancelled as a result of its developer, the aptly named Bottom Up, filing for bankruptcy in the year 2000. This isn't the only interesting part of the game's existence, however, as despite not being published, a prototype build of the game was released online in an extremely early state the first time most people even found out about his existence at all. Some characters in the game aren't selectable, and several characters use a number of Final Fantasy VIII character portraits as placeholder images. But an entirely unused image can also be found in the game's data, which appears to be a small drawing of the Nintendo lead, Mario. Whether this would have ever been used in the game is unknown, but it is at the very least not used at any point in this early prototype build. It seems this episode of Did You Know Gaming has a very face-oriented undertone, as our next piece of trivia is also about a face. Naturally, with the advent of 3D graphics and 3D worlds, the prospect of soaring through the skies was one that many wanted to realize. Pilot Wing 64 took this idea and ran with it, or flew with it rather. The unusual cult classic of course has its own little secrets and easter eggs. It's already well known that it's possible to fly into the mountains where Mario's head can be found in a similar vein to Mount Rushmore. Shooting at this head a few times will change its appearance from Mario to Wario. But this isn't the only face which can be found hidden in the game. One made all the more difficult to see as it was removed from international localizations of the game. Inside a cave found on Everfrost Island, it's possible to find a rock with a somewhat familiar pattern. While it's not known whether this is intentional or not, the rock has what appears to be the face of Jesus Christ as seen on the Turin Shroud a linen cloth which bears the negative image of a man believed to be Jesus Christ. As we said, regardless of whether this is intentional or an unfortunate coincidence, it was ultimately removed from international release. From the face of Jesus Christ to the face of a clock. 
like the clock at the center of the plot of Majora's Mask, a story about the passage of time and the passage of the person through time, Link. In an article found in the September 2000 issue of Nintendo Power, the writer for the game's English language script, Jason Leung, claimed that the South Clocktown business scrub's allusion to his work keeping him away from his wife was actually an intentional nod from the developers at Nintendo of Japan about their own tribulations during the production of the title. Some of these tribulations were likely in trying to create such a massive adventure with limited console resources. The N64 isn't exactly a powerhouse and a result of this can actually be seen with the lag spike that occurs during the Giants cutscene. When the game was released on the Nintendo Switch, a conscious effort was made to replicate this lag spike intentionally in how the game is emulated. This lag spike was introduced to simulate the N64's own stuttering performance, as if it had not simulated. An error occurs in the scene in which the cutscene will finish before the background music has had a chance to catch up. This error actually happens in the Wii and Wii U Virtual Console versions of Majora's Mask, which didn't bother to emulate the lagging. The lag ultimately extends the scene by about 8 seconds, which you might not notice if you're not some sort of speedrunner. Nothing says that this is a Nintendo video quite like Mario. That's right, Mario is a Nintendo series, and a game in that series is Super Mario 64. Mario 64 practically sold the console alone, with the tender love and care that went into the title being abundant. But there was so much love that some of it went unused. Leftover code in the game's data reveals that there was considerable effort put into the tiny role of Mips the Rabbit, who only appears once throughout the entirety of the game's original release. The unused code relates to the player throwing Mips, with a unique animation of him falling onto the floor and then getting back up. In the final game, this animation isn't ever seen, with Mario carefully setting Mips down without being able to throw him at all. During development, Mips was also a completely different colour, being pink instead of yellow. This stage of Mips also had another unique ability, with his head being able to turn a full 180 degrees, in a similar fashion to an owl, so that he would have been able to visibly see Mario as he approached from behind. Other changes from early versions of the game can also be found, such as a secret alcove located in Womp's Fortress, which in the final game contains a one-up mushroom. This well-hidden secret was originally not supposed to reward the player with an additional life, but rather a power star. It's believed that this was changed due to the obscurity of its location, as it would have been pretty unlikely for players to stumble upon it, and may have left many frustrated that they couldn't find all 120 stars. Now these next few facts are the all-new ones we talked about at the start of this video, and they're a bit risque. 1080 Snowboarding was a pretty solid game, and was sort of like Nintendo's SSX, but years before SSX even existed. It's similarly oozing with style, as well as some pretty hip and edgy content for a Nintendo game, but it seems Nintendo's developers in Japan took it a little bit too far during development, and two phrases of a sexual nature had to be cut after Nintendo's staff in America got a chance to sample the game. We talked to a former Nintendo localizer and graphic designer, Jim Warnell, about his experience bringing the game to the West, who told us, uh, the, the quirks I came across in 1080 were all audio quirks, and they were they were things that wouldn't pass ESRB uh, standards, um, at least 20, 
four years ago. I, I remember on the, the character select screen with the music playing, um, there was a, there was an audio of a woman in the background saying, give it to me, give it to me good. Uh, don't want your bad luck, baby. Uh, so they had to remove that. As for the second phrase of the sexual nature, Jim told us that in one of the races, there was some audio that triggered as the player crossed a bridge, and it sounded a lot like the announcer was repeating what sounded like the word homosexuality, just over and over and over again. Jim heavily emphasized that he didn't know if the announcer was actually saying homosexuality, but they weren't taking any chances and had to ask Nintendo's developers in Japan to take it out. But we've yet to say what Nintendo's Japanese developers' biggest blunder was. There's a character in the game called Dion Blaster, who's a black man from the UK. His name is only Dion Blaster because Nintendo of America had to ask Nintendo to change his name. What was it originally, you ask? Leroy Blackman. It was changed for, quote, obvious reasons. Another N64 classic is Star Fox 64, or Lilith Wars as it was known in our neck of the woods. If the player takes the game's hard path to go to Planet Aquas and complete the level, Peppy will say, Slippy's not such a screw up after all. And then Slippy will rebut with, thanks a lot, Peppy. But Slippy's clapback was originally a lot harsher with him saying, bite me, old man. This line was written by Nintendo of America, recorded in English, implemented into the game, but later removed. This fact again comes from Jim Warnell, who told us that he went on a business trip to Japan during localization, and when he came back to the States, the line was just gone. Apparently, someone else at NOA thought it was a bit much. But the Japanese version arguably goes even harder than this, which makes the censorship seem fairly unnecessary. In the Japanese game, Peppy will say, even Slippy can be useful sometimes, and then Slippy responds by saying, shut up old man. After telling us about this story, Jim left us with another cool little tidbit. Fox McCloud's signature at the end of Star Fox 64 was written by Jim himself. Did you know? Banjo and Kazooie nearly starred in their own cartoon. In May of 2015, it was revealed that there were plans for a Banjo-Kazooie animated series. On Twitter, artist Emilio Lopez gave some insight on the project and showed off concept art of the main duo along with Mumbo Jumbo. Development on this series started in 2007 and was planned to coincide with the release of Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. Lopez said Microsoft and Rare were very lenient with the show's look. The series didn't necessarily have to look like the game and the art department was able to experiment with several designs with this look being the approved design look for the show Lopez also said that the basic outline was adventure themed and though the designs were 2d the show was likely to have been animated in 3d unfortunately for whatever reason the show never got off the ground development of the series was very similar to rares Viva pinata another Xbox franchise which also had a cartoon because of this it's possible the banjo cartoon would have aired alongside Side Viva Pinata on the 4Kids TV Saturday morning block. There were other attempts at marketing that didn't pan out for nuts and bolts. During the game's development, Rare supposedly entered the Red Bull Flug Tag. This was an air show where competitors fly homemade man-powered flying machines and anyone can enter. They had an application pitched to the event, but according to banjo designer Greg Mails, the idea was rejected. One interesting fact about the first banjo is that there's 116 mumbo tokens to collect, but the player can 
only legitimately obtain 115. Two tokens in particular are found in Mad Monster Mansion, one hidden inside a breakable keg in the wine cellar, and the other found in the area underneath Lago the toilet. These tokens were accidentally assigned the same bit in memory, and when one of them is picked up, the other simply vanishes into thin air. The Banjo games also have had some interesting regional changes. For example, Gruntilda is known for speaking in rhyme, but this was handled differently in the Japanese releases. It's extremely easy to rhyme in Japanese, so easy that it happens by accident constantly. Because of this, Japanese poetry never adopted a rhyming style and favored things like haiku and tanka instead. Since Gruntilda's rhyming would be lost in translation, the Japanese localizers removed it and gave her some unique speech patterns instead. She was made to speak like an old Japanese woman, using a verbal tick at the end of a sentence. Occasionally, she also holds some of her vowels longer than normal, making for an unusual way of talking. Jam Jars is the main rhymer in Banjo-Tooie, with his speech syncing up with the drill music. However, the Japanese game made no attempt to adapt this. He simply explains the moves out of sync with the drill music. After beating Grunty at the end of Banjo-Tooie, the main characters decide to kick her detached head around. However, this ending was altered in the Japanese release, with her head being concealed in a sack. This was likely changed to align with Japan's strict laws of dismemberment in media. In the Japanese version of Tui on Xbox Live Arcade, the end cutscene plays out as it normally does in all other versions. When Banjo Tui was announced for Xbox Live Arcade, Rare said the game would be a note-perfect migration of the original. However, the game actually came with a number of glitches and oddities in the audio department. Certain enemy sound effects cut out early, and the theremin instrument lacks the vibrato it had in the original. This can be seen by comparing the sound when a jiggy appears in the N64 version compared to the Xbox Live version. The most evident music issues are in the cutscenes, notably the first scene in the game. The cutscenes used the lower frame rate of the original game to play music and specific stings in time with the events on screen. With the higher frame rate on Xbox, the music becomes out of sync and doesn't reach its end by the time the intro cutscene finishes. Banjo-Tooie boasts a large cast of characters, three of which had their names chosen by fans in the United Kingdom. In April 2000, issue 91 of the Nintendo Official Magazine, which later rebranded as Official Nintendo Magazine, held a contest on Rare's behalf. The contest let readers submit names for three characters, with the winners having their submissions used in the final game. They'd also win a free copy of Tooie and signed artwork from the Rare developers. These character names were Bully and Bill, chosen by Kyle Hudspeth, Chris P. Bacon by Simon Turk, and Jeremy Craggs named Old King Cole. This final name was actually submitted by several contestants, but Jeremy had his name drawn first. Interestingly, this contest also claimed Tui would be out later in 2000. While the game came out in November of 2000 in America, Tui wasn't released in the UK until April 12, 2001, just one day before Conqueror's Bad Fur Day also released in the UK. Speaking of names, Banjo and Kazooie's have some interesting roots. According to game journalist Andy Robinson, a collaborator with Rare alum and writer for Nintendo Official Magazine, Banjo and Kazooie allegedly got their names from real-world figures. During a trip to Japan, Robinson learned the duo's names came from relatives of Hiroshi Yamauchi, who served as Nintendo's president during the release of Banjo 1 and 2. Kazooie is apparently named after his son, Kazuhito, with Banjo sharing the name with his grandson. However, this conflicts with a different story that's 
says the duo got their names from the instruments they play. When a Twitter user asked Greg and Steve Mails if the Yamauchi story was true, Greg Mails responded by saying it was indeed the case for Banjo, though he was unsure about Kazooie. Robinson had said if anyone knew about this for sure, it would be Rare founders Tim and Chris Stamper. The series is well known for its use of innuendos and occasional adult humor, with one instance being quite infamous among fans. In Banjo-Tooie's Pterodactyl Land, the rock formation leading to Mumbo's hut has been labeled as overly phallic by fans, so much so that they believe its shape isn't a coincidence. It's been disputed whether it was meant to be intentional or not, but in 2015, the truth finally came out. During the announcement window of Ukulele, Platonic Games sat down with former Rare environmental artist Stephen Hurst. They spoke to Hurst about the process of creating a game world, with Hurst citing how fun it was to add extras and secrets to a world's layout. Platonic inevitably asked about the supposed phallus in Pterodactyl Land. Hurst sheepishly admitted to it, but at the same time tried blaming Greg Mails for it. Hurst said, I'm assuming you're referring to the infamous land mass in Banjo-Tooie's Pterodactyl Land. I lay the blame for that one on the feet of the designer. I can honestly say I've never knowingly inserted a phallus anywhere where it didn't belong. There's another lewd secret hidden within the game. Often in game development, the file names of assets only loosely match up with that they're named in the final game. In the case of Banjo-Kazooie and Tui, the animations for Kazooie firing eggs forwards and backwards are named Egghead and Eggass respectively. It's a topic that hasn't been officially recognized for nearly two decades, but the worlds of Banjo-Kazooie and Donkey Kong are in fact connected. This is partly due to Diddy Kong Racing, which marked the debut of several characters who would later appear in series of their own. Banjo was planned to come out before Diddy Kong Racing prior to being delayed, with the characters officially debuting in a Donkey Kong game instead. Diddy Kong Racing's instruction manual also mentions Kazooie by name in Banjo's profile, saying the adventure took place before before the two paired together. The manual also states that when trouble struck on Timbers Island, Diddy got the word out to Banjo and friends by using Squawks the Parrot as a carrier pigeon. As a side note, Conker was said to have made friends with Diddy on one of his adventures with Donkey Kong and joined Banjo on his way to help Diddy out. The universe connecting these worlds together was split after Rare and Nintendo parted ways in 2002, until it was finally reconnected in 2019 when Banjo and Kazooie made their way into Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. The duos included was a joint effort between Rare and the Smash team, having been in the works since 2018. The look of the duo was attributed to Rare artist Paul Cunningham, who started at Rare in 1995, with one of his first games fittingly being Diddy Kong Racing. It might go without saying, but the Baron Bird had been requested in Smash Brothers ever since the original game. We previously mentioned that there were plans for Rare-based trophies in Super Smash Brothers Melee, and according to a 2002 interview with Nintendo Dream, Sakurai confirmed one of those trophies was going to be of Banjo and Kazooie. The reason they did not make the final cut wasn't due to an impending Microsoft buyout, but rather because Rare was based in the UK, and communications between the two teams while still having Melee out on time proved to be difficult. At the time, Sakurai also said adding a Rare character to Smash seemed like a no-brainer, but deemed it unlikely due to a number of legal reasons. In the years leading up to their eventual inclusion, Microsoft were more than open to the idea of having the Bear and Bird appear in Smash Brothers. 
Xbox head Phil Spencer said in 2015 that when working with Nintendo with Rare IP, they've had no issues whatsoever. When the deal eventually came out, Microsoft had several of their titles already appear on Nintendo consoles, like the Nintendo 3DS and Nintendo Switch, which likely smoothed things over. In an interview with Kotaku, Phil Spencer even said, I think it's cool that Banjo is going to be in Smash. Banjo's inclusion comes with a number of firsts. Though not the first Western-designed characters, Banjo and Kazooie are the first set of fighters to hail from a non-Japanese series. They're also the first third-party characters to have once been second-party, and the first to be owned by a direct competitor of Nintendo. They're also currently the only DLC fighters without a game of their own on the Switch. And during their presentation, Sakurai urged fans to give the games a try on Xbox One. The new Spiral Mountain remix was provided by original Banjo-Kazooie composer Grant Kirkhope, marking the first time Sakurai worked with a musician outside of Japan. Sakurai was a bit worried about communication, but he assured Kirkhope did an amazing job. After the Banjo-Kazooie DLC was released for Smash Ultimate, the duo's original designer, Steve Mayles, expressed some desire to have the N64 games remade. Mayles told VGC, could the reaction of fans to Banjo and Kazooie in Smash persuade Microsoft to make another Banjo game? The revival of Spyro and Crash went pretty well after all. I think a fairly safe way to gauge demand for a new game would be to remaster the original two games. Then, if the interest is there, perhaps we could see Banjo return in the new no expense spared game he and Kazooie deserve. Did you know? The Turok franchise actually started in 1956. The series got its start as a comic book with the original storyline centered on a pair of Native American brothers named Turok and Andar, who become trapped in a mysterious valley inhabited by dinosaurs. The initial run of comics lasted until 1982, but the series was revived a decade later by Valiant Comics in a story that introduced the Lost Land setting, which was popularized by the Turok video games. Following the purchase of Valiant Comics by Acclaim, another reboot of the comic was published in 1998. It developed the story to be more in line with the video game series and changed Turok from the main character's name to a title meaning Son of Stone. As a longtime developer for Nintendo platforms, Acclaim was approached by Nintendo to make a game exclusively for the N64 before the console's release. The project was given to a relatively inexperienced team at Iguana Entertainment led by first-time lead designer David Dinespire. When they started out, the Turok team had few resources, but interest in the game skyrocketed after a successful demonstration at E3 1996. In an interview with Edge magazine, Dinespire recalled, We were having a real hard time getting dev kits from Nintendo, and we only had two of those really expensive CGI machines. All of the artists and designers were sharing one, and our lead programmer had one in his office so he could write the game engine and test it. After that E3 demo, development systems suddenly started turning up. It was great. Internally, there were concerns about the game's graphic violence and blood, as Nintendo was known for family-friendly titles. However, the team was never once asked to submit content for approval and developed Turok without interference from Nintendo. While brainstorming the initial concept for Turok, the devs wanted to make something that showed off the power of the Nintendo 64. They also took note of the growing shooter genre of games on the PC and decided the game should be an FPS. Turok proved to be technologically groundbreaking, 
The scope of its world and the complexity of its animations were unlike anything seen in other console shooters. This was achieved in part due to Acclaim having spent $10 million to construct their own motion capture studio, used for several video game projects throughout the 90s. Their studio was even borrowed for some Hollywood pictures, including Batman Forever and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Motion capture allowed the Turok devs to overcome their limited resources and incorporate highly detailed character animations into the game. They gave generic enemies unique animations that changed depending on how they died. While this worked well for the humanoid enemies, the game's dinosaurs were a much greater challenge. The team tried using emus and ostriches as motion capture stand-ins, but this proved impractical. Still, Remington Scott, the then interactive director for Acclaim, maintains that having an emu as a reference improved the game's final dinosaur animations. Despite all the hype leading up to its release, Turok represented a risky venture for Acclaim. The company lost over $200 million in fiscal year 1996 and were forced to lay off 100 employees. The game's mature rating and the hefty $80 price tag caused some analysts to doubt the game's potential. In the end though, Turok overcame these drawbacks and was a massive hit, selling more than 1.7 million copies. The mayor of Glen Cove, New York, the city where Acclaim was based, even temporarily renamed the street Turok Boulevard in honor of the game's launch. Nintendo themselves recognized the game's success by featuring Turok as part of their player's choice line, the first third-party game to receive the honor. The game was successful enough that Sculptured Software, another studio owned by Acclaim, started testing the possibility of porting Turok to the PlayStation, though ultimately nothing came of it. Before Turok was even released, Acclaim announced pre-order sales for the game were so strong that they were already starting development on a sequel, tentatively titled Turok Dinosaur Hunter 2. The team at Iguana was careful to listen to fan feedback, who asked for improved controls and a multiplayer mode. Despite this, the multiplayer mode almost didn't make the cut. Turok 2 originally started development on a 12 megabyte cartridge that filled up quickly. Storage limitations, cartridge prices, and a tight development schedule made multiplayer near impossible to include. Fortunately, cartridge prices dropped and the team was able to move the project to a larger 16 megabyte cartridge. As multiplayer modes and games grew to be a major incentive for players, Turok 2's development time was extended to allow for multiplayer to be included. One of the most common complaints from fans about the first Turok was its control scheme. According to Dynstiber, the plan for Turok 2 was to include two control schemes, one based on Turok and one more familiar to fans of Goldeneye. This can be seen quite literally in an early demo build of the game that offered two control setups named Turok and Golden. These were renamed to Expert and Arcade for the final release. Other differences in the demo included the presence of checkpoints, which were later removed, and a complete lack of blood. Players were also unable to climb down ladders in the demo and could damage themselves with their own weapons. Some elements of Turok 2 took inspiration from other sources. In an interview with IGN, Dynstiber confirmed the cerebral bore weapon was inspired by the iconic sentinel spheres from the Phantasm horror movies. This isn't the only referential weapon in the franchise though. Dinosaur Hunter's fusion cannon is likely based on the BFG-9000 from Doom, which was a large inspiration 
inspiration for Turok's developers. And Turok Rage Wars Chestburster is likely a nod to the Alien franchise. The title Chestburster is usually given to the second stage in a Xenomorph's life cycle when it bursts out of the host's chest. Both Turok and its sequel were eventually remastered by Night Dive Studios and released on digital stores like Steam and GOG in 2015 and 2017 respectively, as well as on the Switch and Xbox later on. The Turok 2 remaster contains several unused levels in its data, though most of these were meant for testing purposes. One of the levels, named Not Dwango, is a recreation of a popular fan-made multiplayer map from Doom 2 known as Dwango. The name Dwango is an acronym for Dial Up Wide Area Network Game Operation, an online gaming service from the mid-90s that became popular enough to use with the Doom games. The Not Dwango map was removed from Turok 2 with the release of a later update. As part of the same update, a level editor was added to the game. The Turok games have seen a few changes when released in different regions. Both Turok and Turok 2 were given different titles in Japan. Turok Dinosaur Hunter became Dimensional Warrior Turok, and Turok 2 Seeds of Evil became Violence Killer Turok New Generation. Meanwhile, the German version of Turok was censored in several ways. All the human enemies in the game were replaced with robots, and their sound effects were altered. The blood was also removed from the game's box art. Turok Rage Wars also had regional censorship. Oddly, four playable characters were changed in the German game. Adon, Campaigner, Bastille, and Syra were all altered. Adon was entirely replaced by a robot, which even overwrote her alternate skins, which became unchanging robots. Syra was also replaced with, you guessed it, a robot. Campaigner was altered to appear less human with a metal tone to his skin and red eyes, and Bastille was given a helmet with an opaque visor to cover his face. The original North American version of Turok Rage Wars featured a glitch that effectively rendered the game unbeatable. One of the modes in the game's two-player co-op trials was Frag Tag. In this mode, one player's character is turned into an animal, forcing them to reach a special platform to change back while the opposing team can earn points for killing the animal player. At the end of the match, the team with the highest score wins. Due to the glitch, however, any frag tag level played in co-op would result in a failure for the players, regardless of how many points they'd earned. This made the two-player trials mode impossible to complete. The bug was fixed in later North American builds, and this glitch never affected other regions. For North American players stuck with a defective copy, Acclaim offered to send a replacement cartridge. This offer wasn't advertised in any way, however. Players could only take advantage of it by emailing a claim, where they'd be instructed to mail their copy in to receive a replacement. The game was originally released on black N64 cartridges, but the replacement cartridges were the simple gray. Because of how relatively unknown the replacement offer was, gray cartridges of Turok Rage Wars have gone on to become valuable collector's items. Another rare and extremely unique piece of Turok history was sold online. In January of 2017, YouTube channel Silicon Classics uploaded a video about a collection of CGI indie workstations they acquired that once belonged to a claim before their bankruptcy. 
while documenting the contents of the computers, one of them was found to contain the complete source code for Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Rather than dumping the code online, which would have led to legal ramifications, Silicon Classics put the computer up for sale on eBay. About a year later, a Reddit user going by the name of Code Ouroboros made a post claiming to have found the source code on a file sharing site. But there was a catch. Whoever uploaded it had also encrypted the code with a series of passwords and provided a set of riddles as clues. According to updates on the Reddit post, the first two passwords were Pandora's Box and Trojan Horse, but the third and final riddle seemed to stump them, with no further updates from Code Ouroboros. However, in August 2018, the game's source code surfaced online, allowing anyone to access the complete library of character models, sound effects, music, and other assets from Turok. The Turok franchise continued to evolve after the N64's life cycle. The first next-gen Turok game was Turok Evolution, which Acclaim advertised aggressively. The company announced they were offering $10,000 in US savings bonds to any parents who named their newborn child after the titular hero in the game. The child had to be named Turok for at least a year, had to be born around August or early September 2002, and an official birth certificate had to be presented to a claim as proof. This stunt followed a previous campaign where a claim offered £500, roughly $766 at the time, and an Xbox to any Brits who'd legally changed their name to Turok. The British marketing stunt had thousands of responses, and we can only pray that the Name Your Child Turok stunt had none. Did you also know that there's over 30 Mario video games that America never got, or that there's a cancelled Zelda game for the DS that no one had ever heard of until a few weeks ago? For more on those, click or tap one of the videos on screen, and thanks for watching. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.